0: As we get to continue to talk about trusting God, it's a theme that keeps coming up over and over in Isaiah because Isaiah is writing to a people who are struggling with looking at the world and their circumstances and forgetting God and forgetting who He is. This morning as 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 we were getting ready for the service, I I got to dread Don talking to me. But not because it's Don. Don's, Don's wonderful. It was one of those mornings where he came in every five minutes and said, oh, by the way, this is broken too. And, and so we went through no projector, two software packages breaking, the computer breaking, and amps breaking this morning. And at the end of it, we're just sort of laughing because I said, I, I, we're talking about trusting in God today. <laughs> and, and I don't know what's going to happen next. And um, isn't that the truth, though? We don't always know what's going to happen next. And so that's why it's so silly to trust in ourselves and so silly not to look at who does know what's going to happen next. Last week, we, we journeyed with Isaiah as, as God gave him visions of what the end time, times would look like. And before that, he kept saying, don't trust in this country, they're going to fall. And don't trust in this country, they're going to fall. And he went through all these things that we could trust in and said, don't trust in them, trust in God, Right? And then last week, we took a journey and He took us to the end of time. And If you remember our timeline. And He took us to where the kingdoms of this world and where His kingdom end up. And we have the, the whole realm of man and self. And if I trust self and trust knowledge and trust money and trust my own wisdom and trust other people and trust whatever, and God showed Isaiah that that ends in destruction. It falls apart. It can't last. It doesn't last. But then he took Isaiah and showed him what happens to God's kingdom. And he used two cities to illustrate that. The city of man and the city of God. And the city of God ends in eternity and a new heaven and new earth and blessings, amazing fellowship with God. And so now, this week, Isaiah is going to continue that theme. But it's almost as if he's, he's taking what he saw about what's going to happen in the future... And sitting there and thinking about it and starting to apply it to today and starting to, to learn lessons from it. You know, we have a phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty. right? It's true. You can look back and, and it's really, really good or easy to say, I, I, I know what I should have done there. I sh- I should have done this or I shouldn't have done this. If you're a Dodger manager, hindsight is 20-20 ma- today of what he should or shouldn't have done in the game yesterday. But we don't get that luxury. In Isaiah we do. So picture. If hindsight's 2020, 20, God takes Isaiah to the end times, shows him how it ends up, shows him who wins, who loses, what the results of different ways of thinking are. And so now Isaiah is sitting looking at that, and his hindsight is our present. Does that make sense? Because if he's looking at the future, his hindsight is Israel's present. And so he's going to draw lessons and draw principles that hopefully we learn from. We want to be learning from hindsight. We want to be learning from experiences. It's okay to reflect back and say, you know, I should have done this differently. We learn wisdom that way and we gain wisdom. But we want to gain in these two chapters some wisdom from Isaiah of what it means to trust God what we can learn from the fact that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He is on the throne. He wins. And Satan and the realm of man and the realm of self and trying to lift self up ultimately leads to destruction every time. And so what can we learn from that? I think it's a really, really important passage because up till now we've been talking a lot about trusting in God, but we haven't talked much about how to trust God. And so we've said, trust God, trust God, trust God. And, and I don't know if you felt it. Sometimes I'm like, okay, what does that look like? I, I, I'm with you. I need to trust God, but what does it look like? And so today, as we go through some of Isaiah's musings and he, he sort of jumps around from the future to the present and some lessons. As we go through that, I want to, I want to pull out some principles of what it means to trust God, how to trust God. And so we'll, we'll, in your notes, you see a couple different levels. You see the numbers, one through five. That'll give us an outline of the text, of what Isaiah's talking about. But then you see the letters, and those are going to be trust principles, trust that leads to peace. And we'll see that in the text. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26, and let's explore this. Again, 24 and 25. Last week, we saw the kingdom of man destroyed. The kingdom of God, new heaven and new earth. And it matched Revelation just perfectly, line by line at times. So now we get to Isaiah chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere under a seat around you. You're welcome to pull that out. Make sure that what we're saying is right from God's Word, not something we're making up, because that's where the authority is. Isaiah chapter 6. In the first six verses, we see that Yahweh is praised for His deliverance. And we're going to see in Isaiah 26 and 27 two different songs. And these are songs people might have sung or maybe Isaiah sung them. We don't know. But they were songs to Yahweh and songs about trusting God. So in Isaiah 26, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Again, a reminder, in that day always referred to some future events. Um, future in, in this case. And most often it refers to the end of time when God judges sin and sets up His kingdom. And that's what He's talking about here. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. And He starts out by, by sharing how it, how it feels to be part of the new heaven and the new earth. The, the response of the people that have seen God's deliverance, that have seen His justice, that have seen His grace, and now they are in the presence of God. Like, this, is, this is a strong city God has set up. Referring to His kingdom, His realm. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And walls and bulwarks were what gave security and protection. But it's just His salvation that gives that. Because His salvation in the end is what leads us to eternity with Him. In verse 2, He says, Who gets to come in? Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. It's a reminder that only those that follow Christ have a future with Christ, have an eternity with Him. So the righteous nation keeps faith may, that keeps faith may enter in. And then we get to some of the most precious verses. And We sang some of these this morning. We prayed through some of these this morning. Verse 3, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts you. Let me read that again. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts you. Have you heard that verse before? This is a good coffee cup verse. You know, Sometimes verses are taken out of context. This is great and understanding the context helps us. The context is Israel or Judah that is not following God and Isaiah is trying to convince them to follow God and trust God. Their world has no peace in it. Assyria is coming down later. Babylon's going to try to come over. They have people attacking them left and right. There is no peace in the world of the people who are hearing this message, and they hear this: "You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you." There's some really cool things about this. the The phrase "perfect peace" there in the Hebrew actually just is, is two words that are repeated: "shalom, shalom." And that's the, the message title. And shalom is something that... In, it's a greeting in Hebrew. If you go to Israel today even, you'll meet someone and say, Shalom, shalom. And, and, but when you put two together, it has this idea of amplifying it, accentuating it. And so it's this perfect peace. This peace that is complete. Lacking nothing. And so God is saying, do you want real peace? Lasting peace. Complete Peace. Now, as, we, as, we, as we talk about shalom, and if you're a part of Living Nativity, you heard this, this last year, shalom is more than just the absence of war, though, the absence of hostility. The word shalom was a really w- rich word that is hard for us to translate. And it's this idea of may your life be full, may it be blessed, may there be well-being. We use peace. It's sort of weak. So, when he says, may, your, may you have perfect peace, it's may life be good. May life be full. May there be well being in every life. If I had, I, I wrote down in my notes my description of it. Ah, oh, that's my description of shalom. Do you need some awe in your life? Some rest in your life? I bet if you look forward to your week, you're already feeling a lack of peace. And and I know some of the situations some of you are facing, you're like, I don't see how any peace can come out of this. God's Word says peace can come. And you can have peace tomorrow and the next day, and your circumstances don't make any difference in whether or not you have shalom. Because your circumstances don't change who God is. And so Isaiah is going to reflect on this and he's going to share with us, okay, what does it mean to trust God? And the next phrase he uses, whose mind is stayed on you. And it's a great picture of a mind that is undeviating in its reflection and and pondering of God. The word also means to lean on or to support on. So, So picture what he's saying is, you have perfect peace when your mind, when you can train your mind to to lean on God to undeviating, be undeviating from its thoughts of God. The word mind here is the idea of imagining. Because that's our thoughts, right? We're imagining things. Do our thoughts get us in trouble with worry? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe maybe for no one else, be like, oh, I wonder if. I wonder if that person just Really is hating on me today because they didn't say this and they didn't they don't want to go to lunch and they don't want to do that. So our mind gets away with but but in in worse situations, you know, our kids go out, especially those of you with teenagers, your kids go out for the first time with the car. Your mind has all kinds of opportunities to run away with the situation, right? What if they're dead on the side of the road? What if they're crashed? What if they're not going to come back till five in the morning? What if, what if, what if? That's the idea of this word mind, imagining. We let our mind ponder and think about all these possibilities. And we worry. And some of us, I think, are wired that way. We want to worry about every eventuality, everything that could happen. And when it says, He will keep you in perfect peace, shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed on you, whose imagining is only on what God can do. Isn't that cool? And so he's saying, stop the what-ifs. Just stop it. And start thinking, what about what God can do? God can protect my son. God can protect my daughter. God knows what's happening in my body medically. And, and God knows what's happening with my job. And God knows and God knows. And, we, and, and we've got to stop the what-ifs. Because those will take us down a rabbit hole that leads nowhere good. And they never lead to peace they always lead to worry that verse goes on and we're spending a little more time on this one verse sort of jumping into it whose mind is stayed on you undeviating from you because he trusts you and that word for trust means to put a confident hope or a confident expectation in someone not hope as in "I, I wish this will happen but hope as in I know this will happen it's interesting, the word also has an overtone. One of the ways the, the word is used is to just fall down on your face before somebody. It's like, well, that's trust. But think about how, how, how perfect that is for the word trust. You confidently hope in someone, you fall down on your face, which is a sign of dependence, a sign of, of trust, of putting yourself under them. And so he's saying, shalom, shalom, of fullness of life. When your mind is stayed on God and you stop the what ifs because you trust in God, you throw yourself at His feet and you believe He can handle it. Isn't that a great verse? And Isaiah is sharing this after seeing the end of the story because he can look back with 2020 vision and say, God wins. He is trustworthy, He will not let us down. This is where you put your trust. And so the letters there, I have, I have principles about trust. And um, I, I put trust leading to peace, TLP principles. And, and it, because in this verse, God is tying the idea of trust to peace. If you trust me, that's the only way there can be true peace. You've got to let it go to me and stop worrying to even have a hope of peace. And so... Trust leading to peace principles. The first is intentionally keep your mind on God and His character, not your worries. Intentionally keep your mind on God and His character, not your worries. And just stop for a minute now. What are you worried about this week? What are your concerns? Just think about those in your head for a minute. Now start to think, instead of the what ifs, start to think through God's character. God is almighty. God is all-knowing. God is all-wise. God is loving. He's a God of grace. He is a God of justice that will take care of any injustice. He's a sovereign God that no one can get in the way of His plans. How are you doing with what you're worried about now? He will keep you in shalom, shalom, when our mind is stayed on Him because we trust in Him. This is the key verse, I think, to these two chapters this and the next one. Think, a couple of examples. Think of Peter. Remember Peter walking on water? And he gets out of the boat, and for, the, for, for any of that were at VBS, no, I don't have cornstarch in water. We're not going to walk on water this morning. We did that in VBS. But Peter gets out of the boat and, and he's focused on God. And he's in the middle of the storm and we sang about the storm and he's focused on Jesus and, and he's walking on water. And we know the story. When does he fall? When he starts doing the what-ifs. When he starts looking around, his mind is no longer stayed on God. And his mind now has, has drifted to all the situation. And boom, he's sinking. But God's grace and love save me And God lifts them up. Jesus lifts them up and brings them back in the boat. That's an example of this verse. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is another example that, that we're familiar with. Do not be anxious about anything. Some of your translations say, don't worry about anything. Stop it. Okay, I added that part. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The act of prayer is falling on our face before God and leaving our worries at His feet. It's trust. And so he goes on, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, blows your mind, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is tying trust to peace. The thing about trust is it needs to be well-placed. And that's what what Isaiah has been through up till now, has been talking about up till now, all the the wrong things to place your trust in. Because if we trust in something, if we we place our our hopes and our thoughts in something that doesn't last, that doesn't work, that's worthless trust. It's trust that leads to failure. It will not lead to lasting peace. And and, and we do this sometimes when things get tough. We distract ourselves to try to make ourselves feel better, right? And, And so maybe it's ice cream. Ice cream's okay, maybe no. But we do. Maybe for some people, maybe it's drinking or drugs, and we're distracting ourselves to get our mind off of our worries. Maybe it's it's going for a run or watching TV or going to the movies or something. And I'm not saying all those things are bad, but they don't get our minds off our trouble. They don't lead to peace. They just delay it for two hours, and then we're still just as worried and still just as struggling. Let's put our minds on God. It takes an intentional act to focus on His character, on who He is. I'd also recommend, this is, this is a great reason, yet another reason to memorize God's Word. Because if you're, if you're struggling with worrying about a situation, start to, to quote memory verses. Quote God's Word. And it will bring a peace that is beyond understanding. That's verse 3. Let's go on to verse 4. And he, he talks about now where the trust is placed. Trust in Yahweh forever. For Yah-Yahweh is an everlasting rock. And, and he brings it back to who God is. Trust in the Lord forever or trust in Yahweh together. Remember if it's in all caps, it, it's, it means that in the Hebrew it's Yahweh. It's God's personal covenant name. His, his name that says, I will do this and be faithful to you. And so it says, trust in Yahweh, the covenant God who will do it and who will be faithful to you. For Yah- Yahweh is an everlasting rock. And we've seen this, this construct used earlier in Isaiah where he uses the name of, of God twice. Yahweh, Yahweh. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it, it can, can be a sign of endearment, of, of being close to God. And to a covenant relational God, that makes complete sense. But also, like we saw with shalom, shalom, whenever words are repeated, it, it adds to the impact of it. It's a superlative. And so it's saying, trust in Yahweh. For Yah- Yahweh is an everlasting rock. For God, God, for who He is, His very character is an everlasting rock. He will never end. He will never fail. This is the only foundation that lasts. The second principle of trusting God in in this section, remember and act on the fact that God alone is always there and always rock solid. Remember and act on the fact that God alone is always there and always rock solid. When you think of an everlasting rock, think permanence and stability. Permanence and security. That's what God is proclaiming, that He is durable, unchanging, He is solid, you know, there's all kinds of things we could trust in that don't last, that aren't solid, right? And so, yes, we're to put our mind on God, but to make sure it's on something solid. I built a treehouse in our backyard, and the bottom level, when we built it, I had it all planned out, and we put up the platform, and I got up on the platform, and the thing just wiggled back and forth, maybe a foot. There was not a lot of peace standing up there. Why wasn't there peace? This makes sense. Think of of trust that leads to peace. There wasn't a lot of peace because it wasn't stable. That thing was going to go at any time. So I had to to do some reinforcing and and put some wood where it it, um, was straight in and it couldn't twist that way. And then it was rock solid. In fact, we we had the the young marrieds at the time over and some of you are here. We put like 10 guys up there, something like that. Was it still solid? No, you died. That's good. That's good. It didn't shake at all because it had the right foundation. It had the right support. Understanding that God is our rock and He's permanent and He's secure and stable is essential for there to be peace. If you doubt the character of God, you will not trust Him and you will not have peace. Theology matters. Understanding who God is matters. Without it, we're just hoping... We're trusting in the wind. So we need to remember and act on the fact that God alone is always there. He alone is rock solid. Everything else fails. Everything else fails. I love the the word forever in there. Trust in Yahweh forever. And it's the idea to continuously trust God. See, trust doesn't lead to peace if we only trust half the time. Or a tenth of the time. Right? We're looking for consistency. And God, when we trust God, we need to continually trust God. Not just a a quick prayer in the morning and then we worry all day. That will not lead to peace. And we blame God sometimes for that then. Well, you didn't give me peace. He's like, you didn't trust me all day. Every day. It's important to have that complete, consistent trust. And think about it. If your car only starts half the time, it's a lot of trust when you get in your car. No, a little bit of excitement, not a lot of trust. If your doctor only loses twenty percent of his patients, you're probably not going to that doctor because the 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 you can't trust him. God loses none of his children. God is consistent and faithful. Every moment of every day, so that 's the importance of verse four: Trust in the Lord, trust in Yahweh forever, for Yah- Yahweh is an everlasting rock. Five and six finish this section out, and he 's talking about God being a God that will will humble the proud. And he alone is one to trust. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. That's the first city we talked about in chapter 24 last week. The city of man and man's ideas and man's hopes. He lays it low. Lays it low to the ground. Cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it. The feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. He's saying they trample it. This is the great reversal. Everything man viewed as important is now brought low, and the poor, the the outcasts of society, are now brought up by God because they trusted in Him. This is part of why we can trust God. If you look in verse 4, it says, Trust in Yahweh forever. And the first phrase then is, For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. That's the first reason of the why. And then verse 5 also starts with for, and it's the second why because He crushes the proud, He is over the proud. He is over the system of man and can put it down with a word. Because he is on the throne. You know that, that that's important to not worrying too is understanding his position. We're we're praying for the election coming up, and we're praying for our nation. And this week, man, there was all kinds of stuff on Facebook about the election. I'm about to just drop Facebook for a while. Except for Dodgers and Rogue One coming up. We've got to stay there. But um <laughs> the election stuff. I'm seeing people really worried about it. Man, that's all the system of man that God brings low because he's still on the throne. Now, yes, we should pay attention, we should do due diligence and be good citizens, but guys, it actually doesn't matter to God who gets elected because it's already part of his plan. The election isn't going to mess God up, he can bring down the whole kingdom. Of man, and he will. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust because he is above it and he is above all things. We can even trust God in election cycles. What we see here is that pride is the opposite of trust. You can't have both. Pride is trusting in self, my thoughts, my intellect, my money, my way of thinking. It's nothing compared to God. Let's move to the next section of the song. Isaiah, the verses 7-15. to 15. Isaiah reflects on the impact of following God's commands. And this whole section is about following God's commands. The path of the righteous is level in verse 7. You make level the way of the righteous. And he says the same thing twice. And the idea is that he smooths out the obstacles. He is not saying that life will be perfect. But remember, he's looking at the end of the time. He's looking at how it ends and looking back and saying, oh, God was leveling that out. God was working. He is taking his people and he's protecting and leading them. Do you ever look back on situations and say, oh, that's what God was doing. That's what God was protecting me from. That's what God was teaching me. He was faithful path of the righteous is level you make level the way of the righteous in the path of your judgments O lord we wait for you your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul and it really looks like isaiah is jumping back to applying this to his current time to some of the struggles that they were like we don't know for sure and there's all kinds of difference of opinions but the idea that that we're now waiting on god at that when we're in the new heaven and new earth we're no longer waiting on god we're no longer waiting to see him work but in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. I think the word for judgments there is an unfortunate translation because it's really more his commands, his instructions, his laws. And so in the, in the path of your instructions, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. And what he's saying is as we wait for God, which is another word that's often used for trust, as we trust Him to work, we're we're doing what He says. We're following His commands. We're looking at His name, which represents His character, His reputation. We're honoring that. And remembrance of Him is the desire of our soul. And what we see here is that trusting in God, a trust that leads to peace, is an act of trust. It isn't just sitting around and doing nothing. It's a, it's a trust that actively seeks to do what God wants us to do. Sometimes I say, do what you know. In uncertainty, do what you know. We know everything in this book. And then trust that God will lead you from there. And so, a couple of, of principles there of trust that leads to peace. We trust God, let us see, when we actively follow his instructions, whether we like them or not. Mom's dad, do you ever say to your kids when you ask them to do something and they're like, no, I don't want to do it. You're like, just trust me. You're actually hitting on a very important principle there because obedience to a command that we may not understand is a way we show trust in God. It, it, we don't have to understand God's mind. We don't have to understand why He says what He says. We trust God by following His command. So we trust God when we actively follow His instructions, whether we like them or not. I love just a—it's a, a classic illustration. I've used it before; many pastors have used it before. But, but back in 1860, a, a famous tightrope walker, Blondin, is his name. He, he set up a tightrope across Niagara Falls. You heard this, and and he goes across Niagara Falls. There's a big crowd watch him. Goes across and comes back, and everyone's like, "Ah, oh, you did it! You're great!" And he's like, "Yeah. Do do you trust that I could do it again?" like, yeah, you can do it again. And they say, do you trust that I can do it with someone on my back? Yeah, yeah, you're great. You can do it with someone on your back. Okay, I need one of you to go on my back. <laughs> no one volunteered. He went person by person. Finally, the story goes, and, and I found it in several sources, so I'm assuming it's true, but a, a young man finally came from the back and said, you know what, I trust you. And got on his back. And they went across and came back. What a story that young man had to tell because he trusted in this person's character. Now, I'm not saying trust a tightrope walker because we just said that the only lasting trust is on our solid rock. (laughs) Tightropes aren't solid. They're not a rock. It's a man. No. But, But what a great illustration of it's not trust unless we act on it. You can say you trust all you want, but unless you're willing to follow God's commands, even when you don't understand it, even when it's hard... It's not trust. And so we say, well, what does it mean to trust in God? It means doing what He says, even if we don't understand it. That can be hard. It can be challenging. See, we trust God when it would be easy to lie at work to get out of a situation and we still tell the truth. We trust God when just changing a few numbers would get us the contract we wanted and we choose not to. We trust God when we see another woman and are attracted to another woman and we choose to look away and not develop a friendship because we will remain faithful to our wives. Those are all elements of actively trusting God. So he says, in, your, in the path of your judgments or your commands, O Lord, we wait for you. Which means we'll be doing what you say as we wait for you to act. And the second part of that, your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. A trust that leads to peace makes God's honor and reputation our deepest desire. Make God's honor and reputation your deepest desire, even above your desires for the situation. He goes on in in the next verse and says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgment or your commands, your instructions are in the earth, the inhabitants of the, the earth or of the world learn righteousness. And he's talking about following God's commands, but for the sake of his name, for the sake of his remembrance. Jump down to verse 13. O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. Remember our study of the names of God. His name represents His character, His being, who He is, His reputation. And so Isaiah is saying, we do what He says, but we don't do it for our own purposes. We do it to lift His name up, His reputation, His honor. Here's how this works out practically. We get in a situation that we're worried and we don't know what's going to happen and, and we're, we're praying, we're asking God for what to happen and we have ideas in our head of, of what we want to see happen because we all do that. We, we know what we want. And we're praying that direction. That's the wrong way to pray. We need to be praying that God's name is honored, that God's reputation is expanded. And so we're in the middle of a storm. The, the question is, how can I bring glory to God in this? How can I direct people to know who God is and what He's doing? There's a purpose in the storms that you go through. That I go through. And so Isaiah is saying, change your mindset. It's about His name, His remembrance. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are on the earth, when I obey your laws, when I follow you, Other people learn righteousness. They see you. And so that's letter D. Make God's honor and reputation your deepest desire, even above your desires for the situation. You know, the the verses go on there to, to flesh this out a little bit. In verse 10 and 11, he talks about, well, what about the wicked? If favor is shown to the wicked, he doesn't learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness or when things are good and things are are, are great, the wicked deals corruptly. He deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, your hand is lifted up, but they don't see it. They do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. And as Isaiah is reflecting on the impact of following God's commands, he's reflecting that the righteous follow God But the unrighteous, if they aren't judged, if there aren't consequences for their actions, they take that as a sign that it's okay to just keep doing what they're doing. And so he's defending here why he has to judge unrighteousness. He's a just God, but also if unrighteousness goes unchecked, it grows and it continues to go unchecked and it blossoms. And so at the end he says, let them see your zeal for your people that your heart is for them. And we've seen that several times. Let them be ashamed because of your love for your people, but let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Let sin be judged. O Lord, O Yahweh, you will ordain peace for us. And peace is a thread that runs through both of these chapters. You ordain peace for us, for you indeed have done for us all of your works. You have done for us all of your works. And so Isaiah is at the end looking back saying, actually, God had it right. And we have peace because he is working his plan and he knows what he's doing. Verse 14, they are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But then there's the hope but you have increased the nation, O Yahweh. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. And while God judges sin, He gives grace to those that follow Him and salvation to those that follow Him. I want to jump to the next section. There's more we could say there, but we need to keep moving. Verses 16-19, through 19, Isaiah sees hope for Judah even in discipline. Isaiah sees hope for Judah even in discipline. O Lord, verse 16. O Yahweh, in distress they sought you; they poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was on them. And he's referring back to 15, the people of God, Judah, and he's saying, Oh, they 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 were just worn out and in distress and overwhelmed, and they finally sought you. They finally came to you when your discipline was upon them. And then Isaiah sort of describes that verse and, and elaborates on that verse. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pain when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. It hurt. It was painful. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to the wind. We have, not, we have accomplished no deliverance on the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. And Isaiah is reflecting on the state of Judah. And he's saying, we went through all this pain, we went through all this discipline, and we gave birth to nothing. There was no good result. At least when you have a child, you hold your child at the end, and the, and the memories, they tell me, go away of the pain. And, uh, but moms bond with their kids, and it's an amazing thing. And Isaiah is saying, well, what if there's no kid? What if you just go through the pain? And there's nothing left. He says that's what our nation's like. And he says because we have not shown Christ to the world or, G- or God to the world, we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. Do you remember the promise to Abram? They were supposed to bless the nations. They were supposed to take this message of Yahweh and who He was and live in covenant relationship with Him so they would be a light to the nations and they failed. Now, praise God, God knew that, and his plan was then to bring Jesus and bless the nations in a different way. But Isaiah is looking back and says, we're disciplined because we blew it. But then 19 is the hope again. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will will give birth to the dead. And what he's basically saying is we were helpless under your discipline, but when we finally turn to you, you save us. We have a future where you bring us back and there's a resurrection and we're with you for all eternity. And it's really interesting that at the end of time, as Isaiah is seeing what happens with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, he sees in 2020 hindsight that some of the situations were because God was disciplining and trying to get Judah's attention. That was what—that's what the exile that they're about to go into is all about. God saying, "Look at me, follow me. I love you. Be in relationship with me." After 70 years, He brings them back. For us, if we're to to take a, a trust principle out of this, is we need to check ourselves to see if our situation is disciplined. Check ourselves to see if our situations are disciplined, and if they are, turn to God. Now, here's the deal: not all trials are disciplined. Not all trials are because of sin. Some of it is just we're in a fallen world. Some of it is an opportunity of, for God to show His glory and show His faithfulness through us. But sometimes it's because of sin in our lives. And we better ask the question. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me. For Judah, what they were going through was discipline. And God was, was purposely disciplining them to turn them back to him. And we're going to see Isaiah talk about that a little bit more in the next chapter. See, God often uses circumstances and dis- to discipline and reveal sin in our lives. But in the end, their hope, because they followed God, was being resurrected to the new heaven and new earth, to eternity with Him. Real hope is willing, or real trust is willing to ask that question. Next section there, um, last two verses, 19 and 20, and the first verse of 27, Isaiah warns of God's coming judgment on the earth. Isaiah warns of God's coming judgment on the earth. Come, my people, into your chamber. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. In that day, Yahweh with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeting serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And so Isaiah uses 2020 hindsight to say, "There's going to come a time. you need to run, you need to hide, because God is going to judge injustice and sin on this world." But this is a story of God's justice and His grace to tell them to hide and shut the doors. Some people think this is referring to the 70-year exile. Some people think this might be referring to the tribulation, the great tribulation that is still coming. Could be both. The thing is, it's a proof of God's justice and His care so they could trust Him. Rest assured, this is letter F there, rest assured that God will take care of sin and injustice in His time. See, trust that leads to peace is on a firm foundation, but it is confident in how God works. And that confidence says, I I know that God will make things right. He will do the right thing. He will judge sin. I can trust Him. Verse 1 of 27, when it talks about Leviathan, it's interesting that Leviathan was in just popular literature of the time, folklore of the time, of of a monster from the sea that brought chaos. And it was sometimes used to represent evil powers. And so Isaiah is taking something that they're familiar with in culture and saying, God's going to destroy the the whole realm of evil. He's going to wipe it out. I I love the description of his sword. My my boys would love this. His hard and great and strong sword. And it's a a triple words there that show this is a powerful, awesome sword. Better than any lightsaber. Better than any sword that has ever been because God is all-powerful. Stresses his might. And finally, the last chapter, chapter 27, and this is a unit where he he comes back and sort of recaps a lot of things. Israel will be blessed after God deals with their sin and punishes evil. Israel will be blessed after God deals with their sin and punishes evil. Keep in mind, Isaiah is at the end of time. He, he sees how it ends. He's looking back. So he sees that God is faithful. He sees that the remnant of Israel is in eternity with Christ. And so he says, "...in that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it." And this is the second song. "...in that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone one punishment I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up altogether. Or let them lay hold, speaking of the briars and the thorns, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. We see God's heart there. Now this is is reminiscent of chapter 5. Remember the vineyard in chapter 5? It's been a little while. That was a lot of chapters ago. But God used a song of a vineyard and he starts some of the same way except that one turns a whole different way because he's addressing Judah at the time. And that vineyard, he says, I've given you everything you need to thrive and you're letting thorns and bristles or um, thistles come up. There's no fruit. There's no harvest. And so I will destroy the vineyard. He comes back to the vineyard because this is after discipline. This is after they've come back to God. This gives us hope. man. if, if, if you've blown it, if you're in sin, you come back to God and repent, He will restore And He restores relationship. And there is a a bright future, a blessed future to look forward to. Because now, this vineyard has no thorns and briars. God is protecting it. He's watering it. He's nourishing it. He even says in verse 5, the people that are against it, please come to Me. And there's peace again. Shalom. Let them be at shalom with Me. Let them be at shalom with Me. And verse 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom, and and so the, the nation will be united again. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And you get this picture of this vine that spreads out over the whole world, and it's imagery, and the fruit blossoms over the whole world. I think of Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. And that's part of how this is fulfilled. That brings about the possibility of eternity with God. He goes on and talks about discipline. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Got that one? Here's what it means. Has he struck Israel as he struck the enemies of Israel that attacked Israel? That help? Not so much. He didn't do nearly as much to Israel as he did to the people that weren't following him. How about that? (laughs) And and God is showing my discipline to you was was for a time and it was temporary. My judgment on those that never came to me is permanent. And he's reminding them that discipline is not a bad thing. It's temporary. And he is working through it. In fact, jumping to verse 9, Therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. This will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. Discipline has as its purpose to bring someone back to God. When he makes all the stones of his altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. The idolatry will be gone. It will be pure worship of Yahweh. In 10 and 11, he goes on to talk about the city of man again. It's destroyed. It's solitary. It has no future. But in 12 and 13... He will bring His people back to His holy mountain to eternal fellowship with Him. Two last principles to fill in the blanks of trust that leads to peace. Trust means being confident in God of His ability to protect, provide, and purify. Being confident in God of His ability to protect, provide, and purify. If you're struggling with worry, you might be struggling with believing God can do these things. He protects the vineyards. He provides for it. He purifies it through discipline. Trust means falling down on my face before God, leaving it with Him and saying, you've got it. It's yours. Last one there, trust God by finding ways to produce fruit even in the middle of challenges. Trust God by finding ways to produce fruit even in the middle of challenges. I I get that from the the vineyard. And the the illustration is that they are producing wine, they are producing fruit far beyond what what they they could have usually and and far beyond what we see in chapter 5. And so even in the middle of some of their trials, if they trust God, if they turn to Him, he he uh, He will bring an increase, a result. For you and I, when we're in the middle of the storm, when we're in the middle of not knowing what's going on and having trust issues and worry issues, find ways to produce fruit. Find ways to use it for good. Make people wonder how you can smile in a situation. Make people wonder why you can have hope because that produces a lasting fruit. Two chapters of Isaiah reflecting in, in 2020 hindsight from the end of time. And I, I, I want to end by reading 3 and 4 again. You keep Him in perfect peace, in shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed on you. He isn't distracted by what's going on, but knows that God's got this because He trusts you. Trust in Yahweh forever. For Yahweh is an everlasting rock. Let's trust God together. Let's pray. Lord God, I don't know what storms are in this room, what things people are facing this very week, but Lord, help us to start looking to You and trusting You, still obeying Your commandments, still moving forward, but to absolutely believe that you are a rock that lasts and that you are executing your plan and that I just don't need to worry. I just need to obey. Thank you, God, for letting us know how the story ends, for letting us know which way to choose. Lord, I pray that you'd work in every situation that that is represented in this room. I pray that You would bear fruit, that Your name would be glorified even in the difficulty. That we can come back and say this is what God did in this situation. This is what God did in this lost job or we're not having a place to live or or in this illness or in this death or in loss of a loved one or this trial. Lord, we live in a fallen world that Satan intends to distract us from You. But Lord, in the great reversal, you use every situation for your purpose. Thank you for being king, for being on the throne. We fall on our face before you and leave our lives in your hand. In Jesus' name.